بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله Brothers and sisters in Islam السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Welcome back to another series from the Ramadan Reminders um, A luxury which I shall remind us um, is something that we enjoy The fact that we can choose what we want to talk about the circumstances in which we have this conversation and the audience we wish to target. That is a luxury, something not all of us possess. Um, how we experience our Ramadan, by and large, is a choice. What we experience, by and large, is a choice. Um, and that's something we need to realize as Muslims in the West, as Muslims in this country and other places. Uh, Ramadan carries a very specific connotation. Um will be manifested in very particular ways. And for the large part, it will be a luxury for us. Um, and so many of the discussions around Ramadan that we entertain are by and large um, either going to be academic or abstract or so disconnected from reality um, that we create this um, bubble around us. Um, and sometimes we lose touch of uh, what it is the essence of Ramadan itself. And on this issue, we want to talk about a very particular topic, which is taqwa in an age of universal disorder, getting our priorities right this Ramadan. Think about that heading for a moment. The world is in a particular condition, uh, run according to particular circumstances, um, particular hierarchies are being established, particular... Uh, power imbalances are in effect um, and we're in the middle of all of that and the Ramadan comes and goes every year and we need to appreciate this fact um, the essence of Ramadan which is drawing closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala this idea of taqwa right? mentioned in many many verses one particular verse which we all hear in Ramadan كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمُ الصِّيَامُ كَمَا كُتُبَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ that fasting has been prescribed for us, just as it was prescribed to those before us, previous nations, and the purpose of which is taqwa, so that we may attain the taqwa, get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, instill the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in us, um, be conscious of the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over us. Um, and for a large part, we, we take this concept and we internalize it. Um, dare I say, Sometimes we secularize it. Um, let's discuss that for a moment. What is taqwa? What isn't taqwa? Um, you know, I was having a conversation with a nine-year-old just two days ago. Um, and I asked her, uh, why do you fast? And she says, very, very frankly, because Allah said. Because Allah told me so. Told me to do so. I said, okay, what can't you do during Ramadan? She said, I can't eat. I can ask her, well, what's stopping you from actually just eating? And she thought about it for a second and she said, well, because, you know, in the end there's a very big prize. And she's referring by that um, Jannah. Um, and I said, I asked her, what would happen if you did break your fast? She goes, there's a very, there's a very big punishment at the end. And, of course, referring to Jahannam. Um, you know, this very simple concept... Um, why you would do something or not do something is beautifully demonstrated in very simplistic terms with the responses of this nine-year-old. 
Um, you know, you do things because Allah ultimately Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has asked of you to do that. You refrain from those things that are prohibited for us for the simple underlying fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prescribed so. Um, and you realize as a consequence of all of this, the relationship between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that we are his creation and ultimately we're created for a purpose um, and where there's the concept of reckoning in the end and there's the accountability in relation to all of that. And this nine-year-old um, carries this concept very simply but very strongly. Um, there is no one compelling her and there's no one compelling us in this day and age. Ultimately, if we choose or choose not to listen to the commands and prohibitions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, that's why, you know, subhanAllah, I have this wonderful quote from Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy upon his soul, in relation to what taqwa is. And I want to highlight this because it demonstrates a lot of what we need to talk about today. Um, he says, taqwa is not by fasting the day and not by praying the night. And it's not by mixing between the two of them. But taqwa is leaving what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made haram and by doing what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made fard. After one has done this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will provide good things for that person. Think about this quote for a minute. Saying taqwa is not just the fasting of the day and the praying of the night. It's what those actions represent. And to enunciate those actions... Uh, in being indifferent to what they truly represent, meaning responding to the commands and prohibitions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, seeking his rewards and um, and doing everything possible to absolve yourself from his subhanahu wa ta'ala's punishment. That's taqwa. By sticking to the commands, what is ordered of us, and refraining and, and being completely away from what has been prohibited for us. And that's obviously why we don't eat. That's obviously why we don't engage in intimacy in the period in which we're not allowed. And, and other many other fiqhi considerations in this month. But it raises an interesting question. And this is where the conversation starts for us. I don't doubt for a moment that um, you know, any Muslim doesn't appreciate the point in its essence of what taqwa is supposed to represent. Um, what needs to be questioned is its application. Uh, if it's a matter of refraining from food and, and, and drink, or if it's a matter of doing certain things and not doing other things, and we do this in this holy month, um, and then naturally the question becomes, okay, if that's what's asked of us in this month, in this particular arena, then what else has Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asked of us? And this, and this question is very important. Because many a time we walk away with the understanding that if I just fast, if I refrain from food, if I pray my nawafil prayers, if I do those extra rewardable things that are available to us only in this month, we come to the conclusion at some point that maybe you know, we, we develop a sense of satisfaction around our performance in this month. Now this isn't a race um, you know, to compare scars, who's done more and who hasn't done more. This is not the issue and the perspective we should have around Ramadan. But what we do need to have, what perspective we do need to carry into this month and exemplify outside of this month, is an overriding concern with the commands and the prohibitions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if this month comes and we busy ourselves with our individual ibadat, 
We read as much Quran as we as we can. We make as much dua as we can, which we all should. Um, you know, we we help our wives and our children. We help our mothers, and, and we come to their to their service, um, and our parents. Um, we do everything. We pray all the extra prayers that are available to us. We stay up all the nights, and it's difficult to to look at that and say, how is that not a fulfilling Ramadan? How is that not a purposeful or productive Ramadan? Um, and no one should take away from this that any of these actions should be discounted or they are of any less significance than all the other actions required of us um, by Islam. But by their very nature, apart from what is obligatory, by their very nature, these are superfluous actions, meaning if we do them, we get the extra rewards. And if we don't, there is no punishment on us. And it carries a very specific ahkam, a very specific place in the fiqh in Islam. Well then, let's extend this argument. And I want to do this by way of example. Um, and, and I apologize for the immediacy of this, of this particular example, but it's what, it's what, it's what pops into head. Um, we're walking on the street and we see across the road, um, you know, a fellow Muslim, let's say a sister being attacked. Um, would any of us in our right mind um, observe that happening in front of us and say, you know what, uh, just hold that for the moment. I'm just going to recite this particular page in the Quran. Or just hold for a moment um, I don't feel I'm in a position to help you because I have not perfected my dajweed. You know, when you frame it this way, it's absurd. No Muslim would entertain this line of thinking um, because there's an immediacy of what's in front of us and there's the response required of us. And all of these external considerations have no relevance, have no bearing on what is happening in front of us. What if someone said, well, you know what, ultimately, because I've been negligent in my prayers or been negligent in my other responsibilities, perhaps then uh, maybe this is what we all deserve anyway. And we start victim blaming in this sense. No one would accept that argument. There's a reality in front of us. There's a sister being attacked and I'm observant of that and I have a particular and personal obligation to do what is within my means, everything that is within my means, to deal with that. And that obviously is in accordance with, with Islam. I don't take it upon myself to do things any, any way I wish, but if Islam has asked something of me, and if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given me capability in whatever capacity, then I am personally responsible to do whatever I can with whatever I have to address this situation. I can't say, look, you know what, let me just go home um, and, and aim to stay up in the middle of the night and make dua for this sister and just turn a blind eye to that. No one's going to accept that argument and no one does. But the funny thing is, our actions today, in an age of universal disorder, exemplify those very principles. You know, there are sisters attacked everywhere. There are brothers being bombed everywhere. Uh, there, are, there is war, famine, 
raging the globe, including the Muslim world, um, there is the simple fact that the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not the highest today. Everywhere around the globe, including uh, in those places where Muslims reside. Um, and that's a fundamental problem for us as Muslims. Um, the body of the Ummah divided into more than 50, almost 60 states, weak statelets, um, that creates division amongst us and recipes for disaster, war and conflict between us. And we see that on the streets every single day. Our lands are open to our enemies who come and attack us at will. We have no consequence at all and in fact are aided and abetted and supported by the rulers who exist over us. And we live in this situation where the Shara has been abandoned, our obligations are outstanding um, and we're consumed overwhelmingly by sin. And we're responsible for that. And every year Ramadan comes and it's almost as if we teach ourselves to cl close our eyes to all of that. And we convince ourselves, unconvincingly I might add, but we convince ourselves that, you know what, maybe it's n either not as bad as we think it is, or maybe it's just not the time to deal with it. Or maybe, you know, in the end, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not really going to ask me personally about it. And we come up with so many creative ways to just become blind to the reality in front of us. And we seek something more immediate and more personal. And there develops within us, despite our best intentions, this narcissistic trend where we prioritize ourselves over the rest of the ummah. And if we go back to the example, if someone is being attacked in front of us, these arguments about am I ready, um, am I capable, um, have I prayed enough, have I fasted enough, have I read enough Qur'an, have I been good enough to my parents, have, 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 all of these haves that serve uh, to invalidate what is actually asked of us, these questions will not even be entertained if these issues happened in front of us. But something develops that allows us to turn a blind eye. And what are those things? And I categorize them as three. Because I don't believe for a moment that not there, there is a single Muslim on this earth that actually doesn't care. I don't believe that for a single moment. I don't believe for a moment there are Muslims who are so ignorant that they are completely unaware of what is happening around the world today, in this country and beyond it. Um, I don't believe for a moment there are Muslims who are completely oblivious to the suffering and the pain that we all experience as an ummah today. And so the question begs, well then, why the lack of response? Why the, 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 why the imbalance in this holiest of months where actions are much more rewardable that we, can, we consciously avoid those actions that would aim to remedy that pain and that suffering which we all witness and for the majority of us actually experience. And I come up with three um, broad categorizations here. 
And the first is the issue of immediacy. You know, if something happens in front of you, that's one thing. But if it happened yesterday, to some extent, it's going to lose its, ur- lose its urgency. And if it happened a week ago, happened a month ago, and every time time goes by, the issue becomes less significant, less immediate, less urgent. And so you talk about the destruction of the Khilafah. In, Hijr- on the Hijr- in the Hijri calendar, that was 99 years ago. You talk about various wars and conflict in the last century. We're talking about a long time ago, decades ago. Even great crimes like the Iraq or Afghanistan invasion. We're talking almost two decades now. Um, and its significance purely as a consequence of time lessens in our eyes. The second category, which I think is more relevant to us, is one of proximity. And that is, we, if something happens in front of us, uh, we feel more obliged to do something about it. But if something happens a little bit further away, our next door neighbour, or the house down the street, or the next suburb, or the next town, or the next country, then in some way we feel less and less responsible, at least in the immediate sense, than if something happened in close proximity to us. But for this to happen, there's a third category we need to consider, which is um, our conception of our own personal responsibilities. Are our responsibilities defined by either immediacy, time, or proximity from an Islamic point of view? Does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say, you know, in one verse, فَحْكُمْ بَيْنُهُمْ بِمَا for instance, that rule between them but what Allah has revealed. And we think, you know what? We're not in the Muslim world. I don't live, for instance, in the Haramain. Um, and maybe this verse is asking something of other Muslims more than it is asking of me in the midst of uh, the fact that we live in the West. And we pose these questions to ourselves as a way to either interrogate what's in front of us or to run away from what's in front of us. At what point does something cease, in other words, to be our own personal responsibility? If something happens that affects my immediate family, for instance, am I personally responsible? Yes. If something happens to my extended family, am I personally responsible? You'll start to question it. You'll start to question whether where the line is drawn. Let's go further than that. If something happens to a Muslim in my community, am I personally responsible for that? And at each stage, as the circle grows, we question where our, the line between personal responsibility and collective responsibility falls. And for a large part, we invent this line for ourselves. We know in, the concept, in Islam, there's a concept of fardain and fardkifayah individual obligations and collective obligations. And we know by nature of certain obligations, they can't be fulfilled individually. They're, they exist, they rest upon the shoulders of the ummah. But if the ummah is negligent in this responsibility, then the responsibility falls back to its origin on all of us. Now again, there are, there are details for that from a fiqhi point of view, but the essence of the argument is, look, if, some, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has asked for instance, فَحْكُمْ بَيْنَهُمْ بِمَا أَنزَ Rule between what Allah has revealed. 
And this is an obligation upon Muslims to live in accordance with the Shara. And the Shara is abandoned today. Its institution, the Khilafah, is absent today. Then upon whose shoulders does this obligation rest? The restitution of the Shara, its implementation, upon whose shoulders does this rest? If war and conflict break out in some place in the Muslim world, upon whose responsibility, upon whose shoulders does it rest to reverse that situation? And if we're all negligent of it, then who's going to do it? And if those who are most capable aren't doing it, then what about the rest of us? And so on and so forth. This issue of defining what is our personal space, what is our sense of personal responsibility, is really problematic if we don't take that from a shara'i point of view. And in this sense, there's two other things we need to think about here. When it's explained in this way um, to Muslims, um, and we have this conversation, no Muslim in their right mind is going to say, you know what, I don't care what happens to Muslims in the Muslim world. No one's going to say that. No one's going to say, you know what, I'm uncomfortable with the fact that the shara is not applied in its totality today. No Muslim in their right mind is going to say that. Um, and in many ways, we witness war and conflict. And again, the majority of us experience war and conflict. Let's remember the context in which this conversation is had. We're speaking from, from the West. Um, at what point then do we accept our own, uh, do we develop a sense of personal responsibility? And let's put it this way. It's got to be one of three things that explains this. Really one of three things. And the first is, you know, by and large, to an extent, it is simply a question of ignorance. We just don't know. Or we weren't aware. Or we weren't properly advised that these things are, in fact, our own personal responsibilities. That doesn't necessarily mean we have to do everything. But it just means we have to do everything in our capacity uh, to assist in its, um, in its obligations. So it could simply be a question of, of ignorance. You know, think, uh, think about it yourselves. When was the last time you attended a, a masjid, right? And the conversation was, how do Muslims rid themselves of colonial, colonial influence? When was the last time? When was the last time you heard a khutbah that's, that was titled um, The Obligation of Muslims to Reestablish the Khilafah? Or when was the last time you attended a talk or uh, engage in a conversation um, in a Muslim setting where the, the topic was um, what is the form of activism in Islam? What serves as the basis of political activism in Islam? How do we rid ourselves from authority? Um, how do we move from a state of powerlessness to a state of power, for instance? And genuinely, these conversations are lacking in the community and the consequences are witnessed every Ramadan where these questions aren't even entertained. And the opposite happens, right? Many times Muslims take the attitude, you know what, I'm just going to take a break from the world this Ramadan um, and focus upon my connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to ask us about what we did for the rest of the ummah. But we take a break, quote unquote. and say, brother, no, no, no politics in Ramadan. You know, and many times brothers and sisters will say, you know what, I'm logging off Facebook, I'm logging off social media. You know what, I'm putting these particular books down about politics or about sociology or about whatever it is, um, history, about the anything that affects the condition of the Muslim world. And, and, the, and the argument is, well, I'm only going to pick up the Qur'an. 
as if when you read the Quran, the Quran is not instructing you um, to get up and alleviate um, and fix what is wrong. Um, so it could simply be an issue of ignorance, and the response to that obviously is is education, assuming that you know the damage ideologically is not there. Where even if verses are presented to us or a hadith are presented to us, that we're not going to frame them in a way that ultimately washes them away. Well, the second point is, well, maybe it is just an issue of how we approach Islam, where it's mainly built around abstraction. Um, we may be familiar with ayat and ahadith, we may be familiar with Islamic principles, we may be well-versed in concepts like fardain and farqifaya, we may be well-versed in the issue of amr bil ma'roof wa nahi al-munkar, but it's just academic. There is no real-world application to it. And, you know, in some settings, there are some very detailed discussions um, but zero application of them. And it just becomes point scoring. As if the purpose of Islamic conversations is just to have a conversation. In the end, the attitude of a Muslim is we want to figure out what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants of us. How is it we can best earn Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's pleasure? And if we engage in these conversations and the result, the end result of it is none of that, what's the point of it? It just becomes academic. And clearly, what we're pointing to here is... Um, some very problematic approaches to Islam. Or it could be the third. And there are arguably more categories, but this is what uh, I wanted to highlight today. The third category is, look, we probably are aware of what Islam asks of us, what Allah subhanahu has asked of us. Um, and we do want to do things practically, right? So we don't have an abstract or an academic or theoretical approach to our Islam. But genuinely, the issue sometimes is so big, is so overwhelming we don't know where to start. And many times we actually do attempt to do something in response to what is asked of us, but we become very deflated very quickly because the problem is so great. And we don't necessarily carry the vision that will allow us to persist in this line of work, or we don't know exactly what is asked of us. We just react either emotionally or out of our own uh, sense of generosity we do it with the best of intentions but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the most informed and again when was the last time we had conversations about what's the precise nature of islamic activism or how exactly did the prophet ﷺ go about establishing the first islamic state in medina these conversations are very absent from the community and we need to force it onto onto ourselves so we can be very clear about what it is that is asked of us and be very clear about how we actually respond um, and so this concept of, you know, this conception of being overwhelmed, that whilst the issue is big, is huge. We're not talking about small things. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, made our entire existent, existence for the purpose of um, guiding humanity, right, with the light of Islam, and we live in an age of universal darkness, that's not a small thing. What's asked of us today ultimately is to... Um, exemplify the actions only enacted by the prophets before us who arrived at a point in time to in a particular place where people were not in servitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the job of the prophets was to correct the people bring them back to the issue of tawheed and build their life around the aqidah of Islam um, and institute an Islamic life that's our age and in every every year Ramadan comes and either we want to forget this fact and focus on other things 
as if we think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will be pleased with us when the, his shara is abandoned, when the ummah is divided, when blood is still being spilled wherever we look. And humanity, including Muslims, are starving everywhere. And we think, as, uh, maybe if I just read a few more pages, Allah will be pleased with me. There is something fundamentally wrong with our approach to Islam. If we can so casually um, compartmentalize it, as if we, uh, if we can so casually absolve ourselves from what are fundamentally a huge responsibilities, you know, and we know this point that if these, the burden of Islam was revealed to the mountains, the mountains would crumble. Allah subhanahu wa tells us of this. We're not talking about small things. And yet we want to engross ourselves in those very small things and leave consciously or subconsciously um, those enormities that are staring us in the face. And so if the purpose ultimately of Ramadan is to attain taqwa, and taqwa ultimately is demonstrated by our commitment to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's orders and us refraining from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's prohibitions. Then how can we imagine ourselves of ever seeking or achieving the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if his subhanahu wa ta'ala's commands are not being applied and his subhanahu wa ta'ala's prohibitions are still rampant? How can we do that? And that reminds me of one of the most potent verses in the Qur'an. Ironically, on the issue of taqwa, right, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you know, Think about this. Fear, right? And taqwa in this particular context is about fear, right? There's fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and fear of His punishment, fear of His reckoning, but at the same time, there's the opposite of that. The hope in his pleasure, the hope in his rewards. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is warning us, fear the fitna, the trial, the tribulation that will affect not just those amongst us who do the wrong. Think about that for a moment. That if we live in an era, in a place, in a time, under a particular circumstance where it is of universal munkar, Worse than that, kufr. And the entire world was built around it and led by it. And we are present in this era, in this time. Do we not think that we are going to be accountable for that? We are going to be questioned about that? Do we not think that we are responsible for that? Do we think, okay, alhamdulillah, because I'm Muslim, I believe in Allah, I pray and I fast and I read my Quran, that Allah subhanahu is going to be happy with me. No, Allah subhanahu is telling you, specifically you, the good people who profess to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that be worried, be very worried, that if you see the munkar around you, you see the kufr become prevalent around you, the shara of Islam, the shara of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not applied, the ummah is not united, everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks of us is not happening, and we should be worried. Because when Allah sends His punishment, His fitna, it would not just target those who are doing the wrong. It will target those and affect those who believe they are doing right, but they are negligent in preventing and eliminating what is wrong. That's a clear warning from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You want taqwa in this month? Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us, 
have taqwa, have fear of the punishment that will affect not just those amongst you who do the bad. And that should set our priorities right. If it's really an issue of ignorance, let's get ourselves educated. If it's an issue of abstraction, let's keep our Islam, make our Islam more real. It's not just an academic discussion. It has real world consequences. Real world consequences. It's not, you know, we come in this month and we want to get close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There are real world consequences. We have to prove how do we do that? Do we stop eating? Do we stop this? Do we do this? Do we do that? There are real world consequences behind these conversations. And if we feel that we're overwhelmed, then again, keep things in perspective by reminding ourselves clearly of what is asked of us, of how the prophets went about it before us, and obviously, most importantly, how the Prophet ﷺ demonstrated the exact same thing for us. That's taqwa. You want the reward, rewards from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? You want His subhanahu wa ta'ala's blessing? You want a really productive month? Then we get ourselves educated and we get ourselves active in responding to all the commands and the prohibitions that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prescribed for us. And inshallah, these are conversations which need to be pursued and will be pursued from next week, inshallah, detailing precisely what it is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has asked of us and importantly, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has asked of us to respond. What needs to be done and how it needs to be done, inshallah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this a beneficial month for all of us. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability, the knowledge, the willingness and the, cap- and the capability, the drive to respond to all that He has subhanahu wa ta'ala asked of us and to refrain from all that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited for us. We pray that this month is a blessed month. We pray that this month is a month of change, not just of ourselves but of the ummah, that we re-establish the power and the polity of Islam and we confront the enemies of Islam who bring harm upon us and upon the whole of humanity, and we usher in an era, bi'idhnillah, of true justice and true mercy. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم فاستغفروه إنه هو الغفور الرحيم والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته.